You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. Well, a lot of people ask me now, you know, what, what should I do as an up-and-coming band? I'm like, be 100% honest with yourself. Be as sincere as you as you can with what it is you're creating. And if you're not losing yourself on stage um, 100% of the time, you're doing a disservice not only to your music, but to yourself and to your fans. And, you know, it's it's like Eminem sang in that song, you know, you better lose yourself in the music at the moment. Because um, it is... That, that hour and a half to two hours that we're on stage every night is the greatest hour and a half to two hours of my day. Hello, welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza here, as always, with Siobhan Cronin and Benny Goodman. What's up? Don't forget to subscribe. That's what's up. I'm going to remind everybody here. <laughs> well, you're, you're, waiting, you're waiting for that one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know our, our listeners love that. That's their favorite thing in the comments is like, I guess they want us to subscribe. We do. We really do. We, we genuinely really do. want you to subscribe. It's we not really just hashtag, an empty, you know, operant conditioning. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Uh, super, super exciting episode today. Um, you know, we get to talk to so many cool people. And, and one of those cool people we talked to was Shannon Larkin. And Shannon has been so kind to introduce us to some of his friends and people that we never really thought we'd have a chance to talk to. And today we get to talk to Kevin Martin of Candlebox. He was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, as someone that didn't ever listen to Candlebox before, it was amazing to hear his story and to go back and kind of rediscover some of the music that, that he wrote and hear a lot about how it happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and as always, our you know part one with Kevin, we get to kind of dive back into his upbringing with music and how he got into it. And he's got a great story, you know, with jazz influence and all this crazy shit. And then just kind of following, falling into being the singer of, you know, one of the biggest grunge bands out there. Reluctantly. Reluctantly, <laughs> as, as he puts it himself. But, you know, without spoiling too much, let's just dive right into it. Part one with Kevin Martin of Candlebox right now. Please subscribe. So we're gonna we're gonna jump right on in. We we peer cool. pressured our guest today into getting himself some whiskey because he doesn't know what he's strapped in for. My name is Benny Goodman. I'm here with my cohorts in crime, Corey Pesa and Siobhan Cronin. But today we have one of I've been meaning to talk to this guy for a long time because he doesn't know this. But I saw his 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 single premiere live on M on MTV, and I went down to Tower Records and I said, "Can I get this candle box?" tape it was a cassette at the yeah, time exactly. and they said who the fuck is Candlebox, kid and i said no no candle box and I, this is the first time i ever experienced in my entire life 
going to a record store before something came out because MTV made me love it so much that I asked before the people at the store even knew what it was. So, uh, and by the way, I also, my first rock shirt, and I have millions of them, was a candle box shirt because I was on one of my youth group outings to Newbury Comics. And while no one was looking, there was a, uh, a picture yeah. of a middle finger that had been x-rayed and it said you, which was the song yep. that got me into candle box. And I said, I had to have that. And I went home to the disdain of my Jewish mother. And I knew that that must be fucking rock and roll. Ladies uh. and gentlemen, please welcome the lead singer of candle box. Kevin, Kevin Martin. Martin. <laughs> nice to have right, you here, nice Ben. That was an epic <laughs> intro rant. He usually saves that for the end of the episode, so I apologize. Maybe he's he's blown his fuse already. But yeah, I've welcome. Waited twenty fuck it. What when was ninety three? I've waited oh, a long I stopped time. Stopped counting a long time ago. Twenty two years. Yeah, 20, okay. 20, twenty. No, twenty five years. Yeah. Yeah. How are you? Are you any good at math? I'm good. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm alive. I just survived a house full of COVID and I didn't somehow oh, manage no. not to get it. Um, my wife and my son and all their friends. And, you know, I think we're, it's, it's strange out here in LA because, you know, we do have, we, it's very limited with the restaurants and, you know, you've got to wear masks everywhere and stuff, but you know, we're kind of at that point, I think where everybody else is like, listen, if I can just, I'm vaccinated, if I can get it and be done with it, then let me get it and be done with it. You know? But yeah. I didn't. Yeah. So, wow. So, uh, you know, I'll probably brilliant. get it when I'm out on the road coming up in, uh, you know, February, March. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. we're yeah. sorry to hear that. And I'm, I'm glad that you're well. And I hope everyone else stays well or gets well. But, um, yeah, no, you they're, know, they're fine. They're fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, thanks for joining us on the show. Um, you know, we, we're super excited to talk to you. I've, you know, I did not grow up listening to Candlebox. However, I did for the first time over the last week. And Way it's really amazing up, to have you here. No, I mean, I'm, I'm being honest here. I'm, I'm the classical musician that. of the group. So I actually everything... hated you growing up. Now I'm, see, now I'm being honest. Like I thought I was like, fuck those guys that listen to Candlebox. Let's listen to Bush. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I'm really Siobhan. excited to, that, no, yeah. no, not at all. I mean, I just grew up in a different musical culture. I grew up in a, a house of classical music. So I, I learned something new from all the guests we have on the show and super excited to have you here. So welcome. You got a good idea yeah. of our shenanigans so far. I love it. I'm, I'm happy with it. Uh, you know, it's exciting and fun. And, you know, most, most podcasts that I do are like this. And I like that because it's, um, it's casual conversation. And, and, um, you know, I mean, the history of my band, you know, we're, we're 30 years old now and it still shocks me that people even want to have a, you know, any kind of conversation with me, uh, with me about what I've done. So, um, I'm happy to be here and, and, um, and let's make it as off the cuff as we possibly can. So it's interesting. <laughs> I well, love that. Yeah. You don't have to worry about that from us. It'll be uh, excellent. <laughs> just, it sounds we, we, like it. Yeah. We, we call it going off the rails and we do it several times per episode. Uh, so strap in, um, but I guess I guess a good place to start and, and, and the one kind of constant we do have on the show is like at least a little bit of kind of background um, biological information for the people that, that aren't familiar with you and Candlebox, which, you know, I'm, for our listeners, I'm sure most people are. But, you know, there's just on the, the cliff notes of how Wait, you biological, kind of, like how many chromosomes biographical, it has, biographical. <laughs> You know, my, uh, my, are you missing a chromosome? chromosomes? <laughs> I'm not missing any. Um, yeah. So I, I, uh, I was born in uh, Illinois. My father was a jazz musician and my mother was, um, uh, classical and, and standard singer. So, uh, I grew up in a house household of music and, um, and it was always, you know, something that I was able to go to at those times in, in my life, you know, those awkward moments when you're, you know, preteen and then obviously when you become a teenager um music was always that kind of escape for me so um 
I was, I'm one of the lucky ones who's actually been able to, you know, have a career at it. Um, my father took a job in Seattle, uh, when I was 14 years old. And that, um, that took me to, you know, obviously the Mecca of, of the grunge movement. And, um, and it was, uh, mind bending and, and opening for me as a young 14 year old kid, I'd grown up on punk rock music. My first concert was dead Kennedy's black flag and butthole surfers in San Antonio, Texas. So moving to Seattle, that's um, pretty fucking rad, dude. That's a yeah, good, that's great. a good, that's it sick. was, you know, it was so moving to Seattle and experiencing, you know, this kind of um, heavy, um, it wasn't metal, but I, I, you know, I like to call it like a, an acid rock sort of thing because everything was so slow and down tuned and, you know, I'm, certainly had everything to do with the amount of beer that everybody was drinking, but it was a great experience for me. So that's where, you know, I got my start was in Seattle uh, at the ripe old age of 14. And then um, I was playing drums in a couple punk bands. Uh, and then in 1990, a friend of mine asked me to sing on some demos. He was uh, trying to you know, make a record to get signed. And uh, I was like, no, I'm a drummer. He's like, no, I've heard you sing at parties and shit, you know, come sing on these demos. And that ended up becoming Candlebox. And I've been stuck with this job ever since. So that was uh, 1991 <laughs> was when we formed as Candlebox. And, and here I am, you know, 30 years later, still still making a living at it. And I'm um, very fortunate. So that's kind of the, the cliff notes of, of who I am and, and uh, how the band started. That yeah. was a true Cliff Notes version. That yeah. <laughs> some people get on the episode yeah. there. But I, no, go ahead, Corey. Go ahead. I was going to say it's almost like someone's asked you that question before. As like, <laughs> it's never, it's never been asked. <laughs> um, How'd one, you come up with the name Candlebox? Uh, <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> um, w- one of the things you mentioned is, is you know moving to like that mecca in, in in Seattle, and that's for someone my age. You know, in, in my mid thirties, you know, I kind of I just missed the grunge era, even though that's all I listened to once I was of age. But like to be sure. in it at that point, can you take us back to what that was like to have an actual scene that was pr- producing that kind of original music? Yeah, I mean, it's it's still. Um, I think to this day is it's the last kind of movement of, of uh, real rock and roll that we're going to see ever. Um, you know, there's just an honesty to it. Um, you know, I think for me, it was the experience of, of being a 14, 15 year old kid and watching these um, incredible musicians play music that were, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old um, with no real regard for, um, their safety um and no real regard for um the industry uh, for that matter i mean it was bands that were making music the way they wanted to make music i used to rehearse um next door to um alice and chains at the music bank which is their box set um that they released it was actual rehearsal studio and i was playing drums in this kind of um roxy music type of a band um which was amazing to me that somebody in seattle thought that that would work but um, I love Roxy music and uh, I was like, sure, I like to play some pop music, whatever. I'd been playing punk forever. So, and Sean Kinney used to come over and be like, Hey man, you got sticks, you got sticks. Hey man, you got sticks. And I'm like, yeah, I've got sticks. Um, and that's my, that's the extent of my relationship with Sean Kinney. But at that, at the same time is when I met Lane and we became very, very close friends. Um, so my connection to the Seattle music scene was, you know, was made, um, you know, purely by um, being in the right place at the right time. And, and watching these bands um, develop their sound and, and the creative nature of what they were doing. I mean, I saw, uh, next door to us was also a band called Cat Butt, which was this amazingly cool punk rock. Um, cat cat I, what? I, 
cat butt, cat. like, you know, a cat butt. And, okay, and, that's what I know, thought. <laughs> the predecessors and, um, of the butthole surfers. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, um, and that was, you know, they were playing this kind of amazing dirgy punk rock. So being around this scene and, and listening to listening to these bands play kind of really inspired me to to kind of be better as a musician. I didn't think I was going to become a singer in a rock band because it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Being a drummer was what I wanted to stick to. When I first moved to Seattle, I saw Cornell playing uh, drums for Soundgarden. They were a three-piece, and Chris was the drummer. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do anything, I'll be a backup singer, and, and you know, I'll be playing drums, and I'll carry the harmonies and that sort of thing. So that was also inspiring. But Did you sing this- Beth in the middle of the set? Like, Did you stop and sing Beth? Was that the dream, you know, like no. Kiss style? Like, because I mean, because that's no, why I, I want to play drums. No, no, I never, I never wanted to be There's, a singer in a rock band. I guess that's why I just listened to Zeppelin instead. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's on, like, sorry. You know, I mean, Robert Plant, you know, I don't think he, he plays guitar, maybe a little bit, but um, I don't think he really does anything else. And, and um, but it was just an inspiring movement. And, and of course, there was the, the dark side of the scene as well. You know, I mean, there was a lot of heroin and a lot of drugs. Um, I somehow managed to stay away from that. I guess maybe it was because I was a lot younger. I was five years in age younger than most of these musicians. And I wasn't hanging out at the parties where, a lot, you know, a lot of the stuff is going on. So um, I'm one of the lucky ones. But yeah, it was a, it was an awe inspiring experience as a young kid to be in such a climate that had, you know, <laughs> I mean, 15 of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time have come from Seattle, you know, I mean, and it's, there's probably more, um, there are bands that people don't even know about, um, that, you know, were, were around long before, um, Soundgarden or, or Alice in Chains or Pearl Jam, of course, or Mookie Blaylock or Mother Mudbone or Green River or, or Mud Honey or, you know, any of that stuff. But, um, you know, they're just, it, and of course, Sub Pop Records had everything to do with the great success of the city. You know, they were so supportive of the local scene. Um, Candlebox is always kind of the redheaded stepchild of Seattle. So, um, you know, we, we were a lot younger in age. A lot of people didn't know who we were. They thought we moved there to get signed. You know, like, um, there were a couple of bands that actually did do that. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we just were kids, you know, I, I think when all of the, the magic was happening and, and, you know, there are so many shows that I didn't get to see because I was underage and Seattle was a, a, a city of, uh, up until like, I think maybe 2000, where you had to be 21 years old to go into a bar to see a band or to actually uh, play in a band. You had to be 21 years old if the band was playing in a bar. So it was difficult as, you know, 17, 18, 19 year old kids forming uh, bands to to kind of be included in that um, environment um, or included in that kind of crew. Uh, um, uh, you know, the varsity football team, if you will. Um, we were we were JV, and they were all varsity. But um, it was pretty spectacular, man. And, and uh, of course, there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think about how lucky I am that my dad took that job up there. And and somebody asked me to sing on some demos because you know Candlebox has been paying my rent for 30 years, and I'm <laughs> so grateful. Wow, that's no, that's amazing. And I, you know, it's it's interesting to hear your perspective of Seattle, because I've always wondered what it was about the city or or that time in the city, why it fostered so many amazing groups and musicians. And so you mentioned it was sort of the record label. Was there anything else about the city at the time that 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 made it so conducive to all these people kind of rising up in the this era of music? Well, it was very small. Um, It was, you know, Seattle's at the time, it was a town called city. Now it's a massive, you know, metropolis, which is insane. Um, But, you know, I mean, I think when I moved there, there may have been maybe, maybe a million people that lived in Seattle proper, you know, Um, maybe. 
I mean, I would maybe even say 600,000. So it was a really, really small city. And music was kind of because it rained all the time and because there was a creative nature to the city. Um, you know, you're, you're, the, you're not really outside running around, you know, on a skateboard or playing basketball. You're in your basement with your guitar and, and a couple beers or, or whatever your drug of choice is and, and making music. And um, we had some great radio stations. Uh, we had a, a local station called KJet, which was an AM radio station, which had some of the most amazing DJs and music that you could imagine coming across. Um, uh, there was also KSW, which was the rock station, which is still around. Um, they had a locals only show on Sundays. They played um, between, I think it was 8 p.m. and midnight. They played every local band the city had to offer, even locals from Oregon, um, locals from Tacoma, which was south of Seattle, um, uh, bands from Everett, bands from uh, Bur uh, Bellingham, Washington, bands from eastern Washington. So it really was about supporting that Northwest mu music scene. And all those band guys, because the city was so small, at one point or another, they all were in a band together. I mean, it's it was the most incestuous music scene um, that that birthed off some of the most amazingly um, incestual rock bands. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 really bizarre that that all of those guys that are older than me that you know from those great you know not even just hugely su successful bands, but you know successful rock bands, they all at one point or another played with Chris or Ben or Hero or Kim or Matt or um, Jeff or Stone or um, uh, Mark Arm or uh, Matt, you know, Matt Cameron. I mean, they all, Andy was in, you know, Andy Wood was in, I think, five or six different bands, um, you know, and also a couple of the guys came from a little island called Bremerton in Bainbridge, which was just across the water from the city. So, you know, when the chance came for them to, to leave the island and move into the, into the city to play music, um, they all did it. So, and they all lived together. I mean, Chris and Andy were, were roommates for a long, long time. Um, Stone, I, I think Stone was roommates with um, Regan Hagar, who was playing in Malfunction with Andy. So, um, it, you know, this I think you, you find that common thread between musicians and, and it, it kind of keeps you in, in the mix, if you will. Sure. Going well, back a little wow. bit to your up. Oh, not, Wait, not to interrupt on. you, Ben. Go I, ahead. He's, he's, he just downloaded a bunch of stuff. And I understand, <laughs> Siobhan, that that like was not your time, but that was my time. So, so people know like Stone Gossard again, for example, he's just doing uh, Pearl Jam. And then Chris, he's saying just casually, he's like, Chris Cornell, <clears throat> like arguably one of the greatest singers of all time. And yeah. You, uh, I'm not going to let you walk past this. I don't know how Siobhan and Corey don't know, but you're like, oh, yeah. So, you know, Sean Kinney. One of the greatest drummers, again, from Alice in Chains. Love him. Like, plays crazy-ass yep. weird beats. Comes over and <laughs> says, oh, man, can I, get, can I get some sticks? But then you become friends with Lane. Now, yeah. uh, first off, I want you to understand that growing up, I just told you, I, I broke this out at the beginning of the show, one of the first bands that I ever, like, that made me like hard music was Candlebox. And in fact, I got into Alice in Chains after Candlebox. Wow. But when I got it into Alice in Chains... I was like, this guy could fucking sing. And I also had no idea that Jerry Cantrell was kind of like that voice together because like you don't realize, and that's first off why I think William Duvall sounds so great in the band is because Jerry Cantrell was so much of that, like what, as a child, not understanding how the production was, that that right. was part of the voice. But you, you met Lane and you later became one of my favorite singers from the greatest city of rock and roll. 
what were you guys talking about? How did he influence? Like, paint me a picture, bro. Like, these guys just want to talk about later, and you're like, I want to know. Like, you're hanging out with Wayne and Sean. What the fuck was going through your mind? You guys smoking, hanging. Like, what? Did, what was that like? Well, I was again. I was a lot younger. So um, my you're relationship. The young guy. With Lane, yeah, my relationship was Lane with Lane was you know, predominantly either at the rehearsal studio or at, at um, like if I went over to a friend's, you know, house for a party and Lane happened to stop by. Um, most of the musicians lived on either Queen Anne, which is the uh, the hill that's kind of against the, um, the backdrop of the Space Needle. That's Queen Anne. So a lot of the musicians uh, hung out at a lot of parties up there. My apartment um, was downtown on First Avenue and I was working at a shoe store called Fluvog with Susan Silver and Susan was managing Alice in Chains and Soundgarden dating Chris at the time. Um, so that's how kind of the relationship continued was because the guys would come into the store for their flyers back in the, in the day, Seattle allowed you to tag the, you know, the telephone poles with your show flyers. Um, they actually still do it. Um, they haven't switched over to the whole, you know, metal pole thing. So it's still got that, you know, 17 years, 25 years worth of paper stuck on it. But so that's Amazing. how a lot of the, the relationship would be that the guys would come in and hang out. And, then, you know, because there's not a lot to do during the middle of the day in Seattle back then. So they would come hang out at the shoe store. We'd listen to music, talk about music. They'd pick up their flyers. You know, uh, Lane would be like, hey, there's a party at, you know, uh, at Johnny's tonight or, you know, on Friday. You should, you and Melanie should come up and, and hang out at, at you know, uh, um, Jeff's place, you know, or, or whatever. So. I was lucky being that I was 16 years old that they were including me in, in a kind of their world. But Are we talking Jeff uh, Ament, the, the bass player from Pearl yeah. Jam? Yeah, All right, Jeff's just so I can let people him. know, like I'm trying to hold on to, to the consciousness of this cool fantasy you're painting. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's the funny thing is, is it's, it was, you know, at the time it was very casual. The, the city was... Um, none of the bands had any attitude. They weren't, you know, they weren't walking around like they were, the, you know, the baddest motherfuckers in the city. It was just, they were supportive and, and enjoyed one another's company musically and, and one another's bands. I mean, you know, Chris was always wearing, you know, a local band's t-shirt on stage. Um, so that <laughs> kind of relationship that started at, at a mu you know, the music bank rehearsal studios just kind of devolved into um, conversations about bands, music, what you were listening to, um, what punk rock bands had inspired you. I mean, they were mostly interested in the fact that my first concert was Dead Kennedy's Black Flag and Butthole Circles. You know, that's like a, I think for them, they're like, how you, you, how old are you? I was like 12 years old. You know, that was my first concert. Where a lot of these guys, their first concert was like Sabbath or Kiss or, um, you know, um, Aerosmith or something like that. Because being that they were born in like 1964 or 63 or 65, you know, and I was a 1969 kid. So um, really that the extent of our relationship was just conversations about music. I didn't, didn't have, um, you know, hey, man, we doing? How's your day going? I'm going to pop over and have a beer. I didn't have that relationship. It was very much, you know, um, run into one another either at, at the rehearsal studios uh, or at, a, you know, um, the shoe store or Pike Place Market having lunch or something like that. You know, Jeff Amet was, uh, was a bike messenger for a long, long time, and I almost ran him over in my car, um, yeah. you know, one time. So that's kind of how the city was. I mean, it was just you would you would see these musicians everywhere and, and that's kind of how how cool it was yeah that's amazing wow. yeah what a different time i've I, i've been to seattle since but yeah as you've said it's it's a metropolis well, it's it's, it's a totally it's really different cool. place 
that he's that five years made the difference of like you were doing the heroin with them because you were hanging out at the 21 plus clubs or you're just the younger brother. They're like, oh, we can't give him those drugs. But like, hey, keep yeah. it up, little Kev. You'll be good yeah. one of these days. But but five years is the difference between like the Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice and Chains guys, you know, getting fucked over there. And then the redheaded stepchild being born. That was Candlebox, yep. that is Candlebox in Seattle at such a crazy time because honestly, the only other place that I kind of feel like in my lifetime that that's happened has been Boston, where mm -hmm. I'm from, you know, in the sense that there was a period of time, obviously back in the day with bands like Boston and Aerosmith and Jay Giles band, but there was a period even slightly after you guys, like obviously your, our, our commonality is Shannon Larkin. You know, yeah. and he's not really a Boston guy because he joined Godsmack way later. But, like, you know, Godsmack is one of the biggest heavy rock bands, you know, on the planet. And then obviously I don't want to say Stain because now that guy kind of annoys yeah. me. But yeah, yeah. But, but still, Stain was a huge fucking band. And there's a lot of bands from Boston. So when Corey and I were, were growing up, there was a scene. And we just thought like, hey, man, like there's just 50 bands on in a night. And people just showed up and the scene was on. And it's like we got to watch it all fall apart. Do you feel that happened with Seattle where you like saw like the whole high rise of this comment and, and then, and then all of a sudden people just stopped caring. Yeah. I, well, I think that, you know, um, that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, the interesting thing, you know, your, your conversation about Boston and my love for, for Boston, like the band, you know, the cars is like one of my favorite bands of all time as are the Pixies. Um, but you know, Damone is one of my favorite bands from Boston. I, I don't know if you know them, but I love them to death. And, um, so I agree with you on that. Um, I think that there was one other city, Chicago, that was developing a very similar yeah. music scene. Um, and all, and what happens is- Pumpkins, Local course, H, there's a lot of good, yeah. like, really good music. Yeah. I love yeah, the Local H what, guys. A lot of people don't know how awesome Local oh, H. Great. If you're from yeah. Chicago, two-piece band, by the way, that fucking yeah. sounds <laughs> like Rush Times Primus. <laughs> yeah. Long before anybody, I was on before the White Stripes. But yeah. Um, so what happens with those music scenes is, is you know, the- it, it is that um, the supernova effect, you know, it, it, it gets, it burns so bright um, that when it, you know, when the, the media gets a hold of it or, you know, the New York Times or Vogue magazine or whatever, and starts to um, uh, uh, kind of try to make it famous with a title like grunge or, you know, these are, you know, these designers are starting to make, you know, $700 flannel shirts. Mm -hmm. um, it burns that star out really bright. And, but the beauty of what happened in Seattle was that sub pop records stayed around and continued to sign great bands continues to this day. Can we just let people know bands. sub pop was Nirvana for people that didn't realize that, that yeah. bleach that, that was made for $600 as it states clearly on the back mm -hmm. of the vinyl or the record or the cassette, whatever that you had the vinyl record or synonymous. Um, it w was sub pop records and it was, it was a very famous label <laughs> that you saw bands wearing a lot. But again, Siobhan, you know, she's used to gen pop, not sub pop. Yeah. So yeah. sub pop was what, uh, not gen pop. What meant you're in, like, you're in Nirvana. You're in Nirvana. If you're on sub pop. Or, or, yeah, so, or Soundgarden. I'm not that unplugged. Yeah. I, I, I know about this. <laughs> Nirvana yeah, so Unplugged's he, a great record, but not on yeah. a Sub Pop. It was on Geffen at that moment. <laughs> yeah, so, Sub Pop was brilliant. And they had, I mean, they had, they put so many great 
albums out and they still do like i said you know i don't know if you guys know the head and the heart you know they're uh, they're a sub pop band um they're from seattle um band of horses was initially on sub pop i mean it's this is a label that to this day still puts out some of the most amazing music and is still locally owned it is still owned by um uh jonathan poneman and um and it's still local in seattle and and so although that supernova burned out and and the people's attention left that kind of the focal point of the city. And I think it really probably ended with the presidents of the United States with their kind of quirky pop records. Um, that's when people stopped really looking at Seattle. And of course, then you also had that kind of metal, uh, I, I don't know what you call corn and, and those types of bands, but that was just really starting to, well, to hold on, um, can I ask you, were you ever in a Starbucks and like all of a sudden like peaches and then peaches for free peaches. Yeah, and you're time. like, this is, this is, this is what my <laughs> scene has devolved to. Well, no, but it wasn't, I mean, listen, there was nothing. There's not wrong even with it. six strings there, on a guitar, man. He only uses like three. Yeah. I mean, they I'm were a great band. Them. But the, I mean, it was a, that was a sad thing. It was like that was really, in my opinion, kind of the the, the nail on the coffin of Seattle. Um, and at that point, people weren't taking the bands that were coming out of the city serious. And um, and I think that's why the presidents were successful is because people were looking for something different. They had been, you know, for about six years from nineteen eighty nine to you know ninety five beat over the head with this kind of dark melodic sinister rock and roll um you know and and of course with the great success of alice with dirt um and Soundgarden with um uh super unknown and you know pearl jam 10 uh and and um you know nirvana's never mind i mean you know those successful albums were were um instrumental in the death of the city because they were so successful. And I think that that's what happens. It's not really the attention from the outside. It's the fact that you have such great success that people start to dislike you and they don't want to pay attention to you. It's not the band they dislike. They're just like, fuck Seattle, I'm over it. Uh, 10 million records again. Like, you know, why do we need to sell 10 million albums? But that's kind of what happened. Interesting. Um, I want to go back and fill in some of the gaps for the people like me. <laughs> and I want to hear a little bit about your early exposure to music, some of your early influences and how you developed. You, you said you were a drummer. What, how did you gravitate towards the drums? Like, how did you get involved in music? And at what point did you decide that's what you wanted to do? Well, I was, I mean, I was very young. Um, I, I'm the youngest of four. Um, my uh, older sister, uh, she played flute. My brother Dennis played um uh, saxophone. My brother Brian played saxophone, and I think mainly because my father was, a, was a, a jazz musician who played all the woodwinds. So I think it was part of the family was, you know, we had that innate um, ability to play kind of that instrument when you have two musical parents, mm -hmm. and it's always around you. So you kind of go, oh, you played saxophone, so I should play saxophone. Um, well, I picked up the French horn at the age of six, which, you know, it was the size of me and dragging that thing around, you know, to um, my kindergarten and first grade was pretty hilarious. But yeah, I, I joined the school band um, in first grade thinking that everybody does that. That doesn't even exist anymore. You right. Know? I was going to um, say that's I'm, pretty amazing because now it's like you have to wait until high school or there's no music program. So that's incredible mm -hmm. that you had that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, it was kind of, well, I, you know, I grew up in Kansas. I should, I should kind of go back and say, you know, being born in Chicago, ending up in San Antonio and then moving to Seattle when I'm 14, there's a, there's a lot of life in the middle there um, that I haven't really touched on. And that's basically that my dad was a regional sales manager uh, for a salt company. So we were constantly moving through the Midwest. Um, but in the Midwest, music was really, and art um, was still very, very instrumental uh, and in, in, um, in a part of every single school that I attended from first grade till, you know, um, my, when we were in Kansas, my sister was in, she was a junior. So, I mean, yeah, I was, you know, all the way through high school. Um, so the fact that I was able to have that instrument at such a young age and learn how to play it, my dad was, you know, great with it. Um, he's like, well, this is, you know, kind of how you do it and show me how to, you know, so by second grade, I was first chair French horn player. Um, and, and that's kind of funny because you're yeah. what I'm like nine years old or some shit or eight years old or whatever the hell it is. But, um, yeah, I mean, and then, so it just kind of, as, as that progressed, by the time I was in sixth grade, I was playing clarinet and flute. And, um, and then I moved to Texas, um, my, uh, beginning of my eighth grade year. And that's where I found the drums. And it was really just because I didn't know anybody. I, it was my, uh, I was a brand new school. Texas was, you know, I'd come from this small, Midwest lifestyle of, of, of a high school that had maybe, you know, 150 graduating kids. And, and the, you know, there were seven to t- 10 to 12 kids in my class to 32 kids, you know, with five different math teachers and five different science teachers. My middle school, when I moved to San Antonio, had 2,200 students. Mm. And so for me, not knowing anybody, um, I asked my mom for a drum set because I had just recently started listening to um, Rush because of my older brother. And, um, and so I, I was really enamored by the way Neil Peart played drums. So I basically got a drum set and tried to emulate that. And at the same time, I was also listening to a lot of uh, punk rock because my sister, uh, who I mentioned the Cars earlier, her favorite bands were Blondie, The Cars, The Clash, um, uh, um, kind of that New York punk rock scene, Ramones. Um, so I was going between the two different styles on the drums and, and it taught me a lot about, um, music and, and the fact that I was skipping around, um, I guess genres, uh, it, it inspired me to be a better, uh, listener to music. So I, I listened to, you know, when I was God, 12 years old, I was listening to, to everything i was listening to can i I ask a question as a plebeian so if you're a a new forming musician you're playing the drums your mom hooked you up she's awesome good job mom winning fucking i love the fact i love hearing that mom can you get me drums she buys you the drums you're listening to the dead kennedys and you're listening to rush okay and we obviously know like the professor over here where it's like, you know, <laughs> hyperspace and, you know, uh, the CERN super collider. And then we have like four on the floor. Maybe <laughs> if you're not throwing uh, something at Gigi Allen's head. Well, okay. No, so now this is, why you want to, this is why I want you to tell me what did we take skipping around genres as a, as a new, as a newbie drummer from the professor versus right. the dead candy. Like what is, what are they teaching me that the professor isn't and vice versa? Uh, well, the, the the professor is a professor. Um, it's an, In it's, class. A, a, it's mathematical. And, um, and so as a drummer, the mathematics of, you know, a seven, eight signature or a nine sixteen signature, or these types of things that you're learning to play in, um, are integral to, um, who you become as a musician. 
because you're learning rhythms, you're learning patterns, um, you're learning time signatures that most people don't bother to try and figure out or, or even want to live in. Most people want to live in a four on the floor, four, four, uh, basic rock and roll beat. Cause that's kind of what pop music was in the fifties and sixties. Elvis, of course, was, was all of that, you know? Um, but the dead Kennedys, what I learned, what I brought, or what I, what I took from what I was, um, learning from, from both these sides of music was the passion and the aggressiveness and the dis the distrust of government. Um, and, and what I loved about the, the study of both of these musicians and, and learning to play all these different types of music. I also learned to play almost every single kiss song there was, um, you know, and, uh, but, did it and sing cars. but you didn't, no, sing, I didn't sing that, <laughs> but you know, it, ta it taught me how to, it taught me how to, I can be a serious musician and I can, and I can understand the, the mathematic element of it, but it's all heart. And that's what both of those uh, musicians uh, taught me. Both drummers um, was that, the passion for what you play, it, even if it's imperfect, is um, perfect because that's who you are. And um, and those imperfections um, uh, uh, are what make us all, you know, who, who we are, who we, who we are living and breathing. Um, you know, we're, none of us are a perfect being. Even Neil wasn't perfect. I mean, when we toured with Rush, I don't know if you know that, um, we actually, for an end of tour gift, we gave Neil Pert a right-handed catcher's mitt because every time he'd throw the stick, one of nine times he would drop it so he was but he was so good at grabbing the new stick that it looked like he caught it so we got him a right-handed catcher's mitt for his uh <laughs> for our thank you gift for him nice yeah. that's amazing that's great let me ask so you, you have any, he wasn't oh, perfect yeah no absolutely and that's a wonderful statement it's it's amazing to hear some of your background and i wanted to ask did having a jazz musician in the house influence you at all did you take any anything from jazz playing because when i think of drummers and i see jazz drumming that's some of the most complicated shit i've ever watched did buddy tell so. you to just give up because you'll never be as good as him <laughs> yeah i you know i, I would have loved to have met buddy rich um i i did i love jazz music i still he wouldn't uh, want to have met you he'll tell you that no, he, he was an not, evil you suck evil human being yeah he was a mean <laughs> son of a bitch my father actually um uh, jammed with him my dad was born in 1922 my mom was born Holy in 1940 so my parents were yeah, my parents were 18 years apart. Um, but my dad had played with, um, my dad played with Charlie Bird Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, um, wow. uh, Buddy Buddy Rich, um, a lot of those cats because Chicago was sure. the mecca well, of jazz. That's where it was and, at, yeah, that's man. That's awesome. Yeah, so my dad jammed wow. with all those guys. So those stories were kind of what inspired me to learn about jazz music. So yes, I did listen to jazz a lot. I still do. Um, I love Miles Davis. Um, I love uh, John Coltrane and, and Charlie Bird Parker, and uh, and, and um, uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of that influence of jazz. I have a friend who you know makes fun of me when he comes over sometimes because he's like, "Oh, he does all that pointing stuff to me," and I'm like, "Not all jazz musicians are like that," you know. But uh, there is an inside Just joke. Just the cool about ones. It. They're the only ones who know that you know a, a seventeen twenty four time signature, you know. So. Um, and, and, and that doesn't even exist, but I threw it out there like it does. And that's what jazz is. Javon, he just pulled from me. That's what I do. I make up things that aren't even real. I'm like, that's a G17 chord. And Javon's like, I know that that's fucked. There is, no, a, no, G, there is a G17 chord somewhere. <laughs> somewhere in the universe. In jazz. No, it's, yeah. it's interesting because, exactly. you know, jazz is something that started to fascinate me later in life. And I was classically trained, but, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's always interesting to hear because I feel like I learned so much from it. So it seems like you would have incorporated some of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that what I do, you know, as a singer, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, being stuck with this job, I, I consider myself the, the reluctant lead singer of Candlebox. And 
But what I do do is when I make records, I pull from my catalog, if you will, or my library of the things that I grew up listening to. My favorite singer of all time is Otis Redding. Um, and so I find that I will sing or I will move through melody or lyric a lot of times the way a jazz drummer would move through a standard chord progression. Um, and that's because I, I was so influenced by so many different types of music, but because my dad loved jazz so much and it was on for me from such a young age, every day I come home from school, if my dad was home, some, there was some jazz record on, you know, and, and I love that, you know, and if my dad wasn't home because he was out on, you know, a week's sales trip or something, my mom was listening to the standards or a lot of, we listened to a lot of classical music and a lot of ABBA. My mom loved ABBA. So, um, I pull from all that stuff, you know, and, and, and I love, um, so, so, so let me ask you this. I, I, I grew up listening to like, let's say far behind. I mean, that's a song that's mm-hmm. so ubiquitous. It's still like it's everywhere. It's like literal. I hear it all. I love that song. I've uh, it, it's thank you. It's a song of my life. Where is these arms of mine in far behind? You know, where's Otis floating around in that? Like, what what can I hear now when I go back and put put on my nice headphones brought to you by Dre Beats and go back and listen to it and close my eyes and go, oh. Okay, I got that because I love hearing that, like you know, because I've been listening to that song for so long, and I love. Well, you won't. Yeah, you won't hear. You won't hear Otis per se. Um, like you know, I've been loving you. You won't hear that, but you'll hear the patience in the way Otis writing approach songs, and um, you know the the respect song that he wrote for Rita Franklin before you know she kind of added that R E S B E C T part. Um, there's. There's great patience in, in his approach towards songwriting. There's great patience in his approach toward lyric. It's very simple. It's to the point. Um, it's it's uh, from the heart. And um, and that's where you'll find um, Otis in that. Um, you know, I, I've always kind of um, considered myself to be a, uh, a you know, a a basic songwriter. I don't, I, I would never put myself in, in the category of like a Chris Cornell as a songwriter or, um, or, uh, you know, let's say, um, Steely Dan or something like that. I don't have that, um, technical mind, um, to write that way. I have the Otis Redding mind, which is R and B from the fifties and sixties was, was so heartfelt and so passionate and so um, struggle. I mean, great struggle um, with R&B singers from the 50s and the 60s. And, and I think that that's what I'm drawn to. And, and that's why, you know, I wrote Far Behind about Andy Wood. Um, it's from the perspective of the drug. It's not me singing, hey, Andy, and I don't mean to treat you bad. It's the heroin. That's what Andy chose. And I, I wanted to pay my respects to this musician that had inspired me. So I... I used my my love for Otis Redding um, to tell that story for Andy Wood, and um, and I did it in the way that I thought Otis Redding would do it. Wow, wow. that's incredible! I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, no, it, no, does. it, it does. Yeah. I'm I'm just absorbing that. You know, that I, that's first off, that's incredible, and I, I have to tell you, it really is a thrill for me. Uh, so many years later, because you know. 
we 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 meet so many people and we do this show a lot. And I mean, and, and getting to be friends with people and you know, like I I I've, I could call Shannon my friend, and it's just like it's strange for me. But like, I literally remember. I don't know if it was like Kurt Loader, like coming on MTV and like being like, "This is the new Buzz" or whatever the fuck it was in 1993, <laughs> and played the first version of your video because well, there's two been versions. Kurt Loder, I'll tell you that much. But. Yeah, I know who the fuck it was. It, well, I don't remember. I'm, uh, but I remember it being on and literally yep. watching it and going, "Oh my god, I'll never lie." Like you know what I mean? Like, and, and I remember just going on like in my head, and it was one of the first times in my life that I literally said to myself, "This is." in my mind to the point where I the only tapes I had bought at this point in my life were Queen's Greatest Hits and Classic Queen because I had seen I think Wayne's World and I was like I have to, these guys are amazing and then like you listen to Bohemian Rhapsody like these guys have to be pretty fucking good to make this song accurate this was the first thing I think and then I very shortly thereafter I think I went and bought like Get a Grip and Appetite for Destruction but that was like, oh, thanks, and then and, and then Pearl Jam ten, and that was pretty much it. I just listened to wow. that and Queen nonstop. Since, since then, nothing else, right? Nothing yeah. new. Yeah. No, I added extreme in. I added extreme. That's why I love Nuno. But like, yeah, I have almost nothing else in my heart. But you were a point in my life. That's the thing. There's so there's all these yeah. people I've met that are amazing and huge and like, I don't care. You're at a point like when I was vulnerable and actually right. things meant something. And I actually listened with the headphones on, looking at the little LED screen on my disc man with the four second thing. You could, And I would just like read the lyrics. And I remember that even the song wasn't in a demo that made the record. Right. Yeah. Like in, yeah. I read that in the liner notes. I remember that from a child. Because I, that's wow. what you did. You read the fucking liner notes. You're like, oh, that's not the produced song. That's the one they kept from the demo. Wow, that's a sick demo. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty great. That, thank you for that, man. It's very kind. I can't believe we we uh, beat out Get a Grip and Pro Jam. <laughs> <laughs> Not for long, but for a little bit. Yeah, for a minute, for one second. You know, yeah. You're a sign of a 90-minute tape I high-speed dub because my dad wouldn't let me dub any tape that I didn't own a copy of because he yeah. was a software designer, so he was very much oh, yeah. against copyright fraud. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's awesome. um, you know, you call yourself the reluctant singer because you know you were a drummer that kind of you, you felt you fell into that that gig what was that transition like for you to to put on that singer you know persona you know was that was that difficult or, or was it natural it was difficult i mean i had you know I, I had certainly um i had some sort of you know stage um awareness you know being in a choir i sang I, so i should kind of also go back with this so i sang in choir from second grade to my senior year, because, you know, mainly because when you're, you're grade school and middle school, you have to take those electives. Um, but then in high school, you know, you get to choose which elective you want. And I mean, choir is a perfect choice for me because I'm a young teenage boy with hormones and it's a class full of girls. So, um, so that's kind of why I was, you know, I was drawn to it and, and it worked out very well. Um, so I was in choir, you know, so I, I had sung and, and I had, and I had experience, you know, uh, being on stage and singing in, in a barbershop quartet with my, actually my brother, Brian, when he was, uh, when he was a junior and I was a freshman, um, we had a quartet together. And so, but, but to actually step out and be singing my own songs, you know, I started writing lyrics, um, for what was called uncle Duke at the time before we became Candlebox. Um, like a day before we were going into the studio to make a record. 
uh, or to record a demo, I should say. Um, so I've never been like that prolific songwriter that's got books and books and books of lyrics. Um, so for me to to become the person that I am, um, it took years. I was the most uncomfortable lead singer. My back was to the audience for like the first five or six shows. I would turn around occasionally, but my arms would be closed or, or my eyes would be closed. Um, I actually, uh, early on when we toured, um, we played the 930 Club in DC, the original that had the post in the middle. And because I wasn't acclimated to the room, I turned my head at one point and, and knocked myself out because I hit the post. And, oh my god! And so I was—I was, actually thought I had a concussion and everything. They—they they stopped the show, and um, so I was that guy. Just I—I I didn't know what to do, and and I just knew that I was singing my own lyrics, and I was in, in an environment that you know people wanted to see my band. Um, so yeah, it was awkward. It was—it was probably 1994 during the Metallica tour where I really found my footing as a as a frontman, and um, and then of course Woodstock '94 which happened during the, uh, the the tour we were on with Metallica, um, it, you know, made me step up my game a little more because that's 300,000 people. And, and I needed to um, make sure that I was reaching every one of them. I knew that the, the importance of, of our position um, at that show and being a part of that um, was going to be instrumental to our, our career as a band. Um, so there was always business in the back of my mind as well. But, you know, first and foremost, I just still to this day, I still get stage fright. I still um, drink far too much before I go on stage because I'm nervous. And um, it's just one of those things, man. I, I, I've never been comfortable in, in these shoes. Uh, well, that's yeah, that's really interesting. amazing that you said it's that. You say that because I was going to say Shannon Larkin. So we met you through Shannon Larkin, our friend, uh, drummer of Godsmack from Ugly Kid Joe, uh, Moonlit and, and Candlebox for a little bit. But the way Snack. you described you. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. And, and when With he. Mikey uh, Doling. When, Yep. With Mikey, our boy, another friend of the show, our boy yep. Mikey Dolan, <laughs> um, who's probably over in Belgium right now playing in front of like a hundred thousand people because his band Channel Zero is fucking huge yep. out there, and it's it's like the whole the whole fucking country. But yep. um, I was saying something, and I just remember Mikey Dolan playing with his band, and I lost. Oh, oh Shannon Sean, Shannon. was saying, yeah. you, you you're you're the biggest rock star that he knows. He's like, dude, I, you know, Benny, listen, man, like, this, like the thing I like about. Kevin is, is, is that he's just a rock star man he's just like the biggest rock star like if you just get to know him like you know Shannon with his fucking hat on yeah. he's like smoking a little he's like man he's like a real rock star like so I love that you're saying that you're like all uncomfortable and all this whereas the biggest rock star I know which is Shannon Shannon Larkin who's never lived in reality ever with his turtles and his bonsai trees which is the greatest thing because he's the nicest guy just he's the friend but he like he's never had to live in reality because he's been the greatest drummer since day one why do you think he'd say that about you if you were so uncomfortable? Um, probably because I don't give a fuck, man. I, I you know, I've, I've never, um, I've never taken this too serious. I've, I've never, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and and uh, and and um, humbled by the the success of Candlebox, but I've never taken it so serious that, um, you know, I I felt as though I needed to you know, be Steven Tyler in order to be a rock star or be James Hetfield in order to be a rock star or be Lane Staley or, or any of those guys. I just do me. I do what I do and I do what I feel. And maybe that's what Shannon picks up on. I, I'm is, and I did mention a minute ago that liquid courage is um, very much a part of, of my routine. So, um, you know, I, uh, 
I, as, as much as I would like to take credit for, um, you know, being that rock star, it has a lot to do with the whiskey that I put in my belly. <laughs> but part of it's a mentality too. And I'm curious, you know, there's obviously some sort of inner security that you have with yourself mm-hmm. that you feel okay, you know, not putting too much into it, you know, like investing yourself mentally. So, so where did that come from? Or how did you practice that? And it, you also referenced, you know, having to kind of make yourself more of a front man. How did you, how did you foster that persona? Like, what are some of the things that you did? Well, it was really learning from, you know, the musicians that we toured with. Um, it was also, you know, I, I right around my freshman year of high school was when I first found Led Zeppelin. Um, and a friend of mine played their record and I was like, what is this? You know, this is awesome. Um, so of course, you know, you can, you can find, you know, footage of these bands when watching MTV, when I was whatever, seven, eight, nine years old, when it came out in 84, um, you know, um, I, I knew what a front man was supposed to do. I'd been to enough concerts, you know, um, I, you know, of course, Jello Biafra from dead Kennedy's is one of my, my favorite front men as is, uh, Henry Rollins from uh, black flag. Um, but I think what I did was I just, I really pulled from, from within my soul, what I wanted to be perceived as, as a singer. Um, you know, I mean, I'd seen Otis Redding at the Monterey Pop and Jazz Festival. It's one of the greatest performances he's ever had. And um, and I knew that uh, being that connected to what it is that you do is very, very important to getting your point across on stage. What a lot of people ask me now, you know, what, what should I do as an up-and-coming band? I'm like, be 100% honest with yourself. Be as sincere as you, as you can with what it is you're creating. And if you're not losing yourself on stage um, 100% of the time, you're doing a disservice not only to your music, but to yourself and to your fans. And, you know, it's, it's like Eminem sang in that song, you know, you better lose yourself in the music at the moment. Um, Cause it is that, that hour and a half to two hours that we're on stage every night is the greatest hour and a half to two hours of my day. You know, the rest of it is waiting around for that rush. And, um, you know, if I were a junkie, that would be, you know, uh, waiting for my next score every single day. You know, that's really what it is. And, so for me, I just kind of had to allow myself um, to be to to feel the music the way that it made me feel. So wait, when you say waiting for for the rush, was that like when they were setting up Neil Peart's crazy drum set and they were like going <laughs> Rototom one, Octatom seven, fourth <laughs> yeah. ancillary kick drum. This is the twenty three. <laughs> Hold on, give yeah. me the, give me the D twelve uh, D one twelve, and then. Yeah. Is that what you mean by like waiting for the rush? I'm because sure like I is. understand, yeah. I can understand that, and and this is actually something I wanted to ask because <laughs> you said you toured with Rush, you toured with Metallica, oh. and in in particular, and this is where I listen sometimes. You said that when you upped your game was when you're on tour with Metallica, and I've seen Metallica, and let me tell you, they're my favorite band. That I've realized it's like when your dad, you find out they're not the he's not the smartest guy in the world, but like he still kicks ass. <laughs> like yeah. I love Metallica. But like you go see Metallica and like there is something about it like oh yeah oh yeah because because Jay like because he even says to to tell people that we don't give a fuck was there yeah. something like was that when you like had that moment like where you're like I just don't care anymore because I've seen the Woodstock '94 performance I've had it on a bootleg that I bought for twenty five dollars at Albums that was printed in Germany way back in the day and that's you certainly look like you know what you're doing well we had you know again there was a lot to say. against. 
there was a, there was a lot of um, negative towards us because we were the youngest band from Seattle. So there was a battle. You know, when we first went on tour the summer of '93, we took a, a band out called Greta that were from Los Angeles that we were you know kind of great friends with, and, and um, they weren't label mates, but we liked them, and, and they had a little bit of like an al- alternative leaning audience, and we knew that we kind of had to cross what was going at that time for us. The single was Change. We had to kind of cross over into um, of the alter, you know, whatever it was called, alternative nation. Uh, well, on MTV, it's like 120 minutes or whatever it was. Uh, Flannel. So we chose, yeah, we chose to go out with a band called Greta. Every single night was a battle for us. Um, there was a lot of negative energy from um, from a lot of the audience because we were playing to people that didn't know us, um, that maybe were there to see somebody else that was on the bill. Um, there was not a, a real support for us when it came uh, to media uh, and magazines and stuff like that. So we, we were, it was the four of us against the world. And um, so a lot of that, what you see is my frustration with people not taking us for who we were as a band, um, but thinking, oh, well, this is just another Seattle band and they're riding the coattails of, Pearl Jam or Nirvana or whatever it is. And that was difficult to swallow for us. I mean, when we did the Woodstock, another reason that I'm kind of an asshole on that um, Woodstock 94 is we did the um, press tent um, that afternoon. And we were uh, we were the headliner for Friday night with Violent Femmes. Um, and Collective Soul played before us and then live be- played before Collective Soul. So um, it was, a you know, not a great Friday night, but three bands that had, you know, records that were doing very, very well. And then of course the Violent Femmes were just kind of a, you know, at that point, you know, the, the college music scene was, you know, so embracing of what they had done and, and who they were, um, that it was a good night, but we did the press tent that afternoon and our, our label, uh, and our person introduced us to everybody there, you know, Candlebox is the only band playing Woodstock 94 with a record in the top 10. Uh, let alone the top 20 on Billboard charts. They're moving currently 170,000 records a week. They're on Madonna's Maverick Records. Um, they're out on tour currently with Metallica. Uh, they've toured recently with Rush. They're about to head over to Europe with Henry Rollins. Uh, we'd like to open the floor up to any questions. It was a one fucking question. So um, jokingly, I said, yes, Mr. Rather in the back. And <laughs> every single person turned around like Dan Rather was there. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so you guys are worse than than we are being from Seattle because you think Dan Rather is going to ask us quick. Why would Dan Rather be at Woodstock 94? <laughs> so that was kind of like, I was like, this is bullshit. And we are that band that nobody's going to give a shit about. So we better put on a great show. And I think we did. Wow. That's well, you amazing. said something really important and you actually alluded to it. And I was going to be proud of myself for just again, remembering this because of, of reading inside labels, but Madonna, did the Maverick Records thing, which everyone knows for Alanis Morissette because, you know, Jagged mm-hmm. Little Pill changed my life and I really love her and she's the greatest and Canada's awesome, just like Rush. But you, weren't you guys the first band that kind of kicked ass on that label? And does that mean that Madonna like called you guys up and was like, hey, come over to the bondage night with Prince and like play for me <laughs> like at my private palace? And like, it's such was, a strange way of asking how, questions. No, but how's that happen? Because like, I know Madonna's a goddamn freak. Yeah, we weren't. We were the first band to sign to Maverick. Um, we had been um, we'd been flown to Los Angeles to play for EMI, and Guy O'Siri, who was the A and R guy from Maverick Records at the time, was an intern. 
uh, but he was trying to get a job there because he wanted to work for Madonna and he wanted to work for Freddie Demand. Freddie was managing Madonna at the time. He'd also managed Michael Jackson. He was managing Lionel Richie. And he started the label with Madonna through Warner Brothers. So Guy's attorney said, listen, there's this young band that's down from Seattle um, that uh, you should probably go see that there's a lot of heat on. Sony Records is having him stay an extra couple weeks or a couple nights uh, for the next week. And you should check out the band. So he came to see us play, uh, play at Club Lingerie in Los Angeles. Um, we didn't meet Madonna until the following, we were on tour with Rush. We were playing Madison Square Garden in New York. So that would have been April. We didn't meet her until April of 94. Um, but we, you know, of course I had spoken to her on the phone. She called when we signed the deal and said, listen, we're really excited. And, and um, we love your record and um, I can't wait to meet you guys. So, but you know, that took about another year and a half before we met her. Um, but she was lovely, man. She's a great, great label owner. And, and, um, you know, I think for us, it was so nice to be on a label with like Alanis Morissette and the Deftones, you know, it was the three of us. So we were three musketeers and, and three really great bands that, that had great cool success. Too. Yeah. Firestarter. Great success. Twisted well, Firestarter. Prodigy wasn't, Prodigy wasn't till, uh, at 99. So, you know, when, I'm when just saying signed, in heaven, yeah. I love him. But the yeah. crazy thing about Maverick is, you know, Guy passed on, he passed on Corn, he passed on Limp Biscuit, um, he passed on P.O.D. Um, you know, he was looking for a specific type of sound that he wanted that label to have once he became kind of the, the uh, president and, uh, and head of A&R there. So, uh, but it was a great label. Madonna was awesome. You know, I mean, I, um, I you know, I, I did have a moment where, you know, in 2000, I, mean, I was trying to leave the label where it wasn't Muse? going well, but. Because Muse yeah. is a really because oh, for sorry, me if there's a band, your story, Ben, hold on, ben, sorry, th that was a good story. <laughs> yeah, What'd you do there? I'm sorry. No, I, I mean, but he's he's right. I mean, it, what happened was, you know, it, Muse was a perfect interlude to that because because they had released that um, the I think it was called Show Off or what or the first Showcase that first record of theirs. Maverick had signed for a licensing deal in the states, and um, and Candlebox was in a yeah Showbiz. And, um, and Candlebox was in a bit of a, a, of a weird space. Pete was um, dealing with drugs and alcohol to an extent to where the band couldn't tour. Um, that was our guitar player, Pete. Um, and that's right after Shannon uh, had come out on tour with us as a drummer, um, filling in for, for Cruisin' who had left. Um, so we were at a crossroads with Maverick Records. And, um, and we, we felt that they had lost their direction because they we're moving into this world of bands like Muse and um, which were, those were signing, those were signing deals that when you give prodigy four and a half million dollars for, for one licensing album, but you can't give the band who built your offices um, the $50,000 for the demos we're supposed to pr prove or provide um, it's bullshit. And so that was kind of, the catalyst of that deal with, with um, Muse was when I said, um, I got on the phone with Guy and, and Madonna. I was like, listen, this is bullshit. And y'all go fuck yourselves. I want off. So they terminated my contract the next day. And it was because of my, and it, and it wasn't that I didn't like Muse. I just felt as though this is a direction the label was taking that I just didn't feel like Candlebox could be a part of. Well, wow. but good for you. you. You're watching Rome burn, dude. And like, look, well, Muse is a great band that a lot, of, a lot <laughs> of money was put into this band, but it's money that, again, uh, helped build something that wasn't you. 
And you got to go. What's uh, this is a hard world, man. This is a dog eat dog world. And when you're not yeah. being appreciated, that that's a hard thing. Well, well, I love Carol Kay. I watched her fucking documentary, and they turned her away at, at the record yeah. label door. They're like, "Who are you?" And she's like, "Oh my god, I fucking built this place." Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so for that to happen to you guys, like, good for you, man. Like, that's I. That's something you should be proud of because your band's awesome. Like, yeah. you have an album <laughs> called Wolves, right? That yeah. we should all be talking about. Am yeah, I we crazy? can talk about wolves if you want. <laughs> so, so I was just going to say, uh, we're yeah. actually wrapping up this episode, part one here. Oh, should we talk about um, that in so length the next time? What I want to say is, you know, make sure that everyone goes and checks out the newest Candlebox record, Wolves. Um, and anything else, uh, as we put a little ellipsis in this conversation, uh, that you want people to know about <laughs> before we take our quick break and fast forward a week? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, um, ellipsis, ellipsis. I always want to say <laughs> those are the three dots, guys. It's, uh, it's three periods in a ellipsis. row. It's called an ellipsis. Yeah. It's the ellipsis. It's ellipsis of the um, moon. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I, you know, Wolves is is out. It's it's streaming. It's you know, you can get it anywhere. It's it's probably the best Candlebox record since the debut, in my opinion. Um, and I think that there, there's some real magic on that album, um, and we're very very proud of it. And just listen to it. You know, I mean. Um, it doesn't, there's so much music, you know, people are so accustomed to Candlebox because of Far Behind and You and that first album that they forget that we have, you know, six other records. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of music that we have and, and we've been producing it, um, you know, every four or five years we take, you know, we take our time, unfortunately, but um yeah, it's out there. Just well, yeah, that's listen. that's definitely something I want to get into part two because uh, we'll there's, there's definitely a very... Um, special and unique sound that Candlebox has even over such a long career. Um, so I definitely want to take a dive into that in part two and, and hear, mo hear more about that process and the writing and everything. But for now, this is the end of part one with Kevin Martin on 2020-2020-D.com. We will see you next week. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 39 featuring Shannon Larkin of Godsmack. Check it out. Because we've always been a band that, you know, we, we don't see us like, it wasn't like an MTV band. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty faceless. That's what's the title of that. And, and it's because, you know, we fly under the radar, but when people hear you know, a song, oh, wow, that's, oh, that's Godsmack. Like, they know our song, Voodoo or whatever, or I Stand Alone or whatever song. They'll know that, but not the name of the band, you know, because we're not, we don't, we don't oversaturate. And Sully is really, I wouldn't even say it's his genius that makes it like that. It's just the way he operates and wants to make a different record every time. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there.